this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are sharing minimally edited interviews with three patients slash patient advocates who participated in episode 44. In that episode, each of them chose a major topic from the summer to discuss. In this conversation, Global Liver Institute President and CEO Donna Cryer and I discussed the range of advances non-invasive testing advocates have made over the past few months. The conversation starts with the new easel guidelines for non-invasive testing. The conversation starts with the new easel guidelines for non-invasive testing and moves on from there. This conversation covers a topic that is important to NAFLD and NASH stakeholders, while also giving you a somewhat less edited look at Donna and me, both of whom you might have listened to a bunch recently. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Hi, so we're back with Donna Cryer. I say back with because Donna was with us for our most recent episode and a couple other times this summer. I also say back with because, well, this week is a series of interviews and will not have personal and professional bests. My personal and professional best for the week was that Donna and I actually had lunch in person on Wednesday, the first time we had ever met face-to-face, despite having spent, I'm going to casually guess, 40 or 50 hours on the phone over the past year. So that was a great experience. And Donna, fun having lunch with you and great to see you this morning in your uh, Peloton get-up at your vacation location. <laughs> Thank you. It was great to meet you in person. And I, I realized as we were walking out with the storm pe- pending that uh, we didn't take any photos. I, I had the same realization. <laughs> we could have proved that it really happened you know, across our social media by taking just a, a moment to take a selfie, but it, it will forever be in our memory. And for those who don't understand the rest of the comment, I live in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Donna was about 10 miles down the road from me. And several hours later, that was the part of the world where um, all heck broke loose, to use the G-rated version, as the weather went crazy. I returned from lunch to find out that there were warnings about being flooded out of my condo that night and having to move all my property and my car to high ground. I think we were all in a little bit of a rush on the way out, but it turned out fine. I was actually able to stay home for the entire duration of the event. And I assume down where you were, things were okay. They were. We were very fortunate, very blessed, and uh, in fact, able to provide refuge for others. So it was either the safe, dry, high ground we were on, or the fact that I had just baked some cookies that attracted people uh, who wanted to stay with us overnight rather than trying to make it into downtown Philadelphia. Home-baked cookies plus high ground is a winning combination. It was a winning com- combination. Okay, we were like a double three, you know, you get the warm cookie on check-in and then go up to your room with the clean sheets and your uh, preferred uh toiletries and, and uh, all the other amenities of a great, great place to stay. So, But Doubletree doesn't feature Dennis and you. <laughs> yes, plus your hosts for the evening. Yeah, Care. And, we, and we come with puppies, too. I mean, we were really, we we're a five-star establishment. Yeah, we couldn't quite do that because half the condo was filled with bicycles and other paraphernalia, but we did have a friend from Lambertville who was out of water come and stay, and that worked out well as well. So, so let's dive in. This week's episode is kind of improvised because of me being sick and then the floods, but what we've been asking some of our favorite patients and patient advocates to do is to talk about the big stories of the summer or what you consider the biggest story of the summer that we've not discussed yet. So why don't you just kick us off and tell our listeners about a major story this summer having to do with uh, NAFLD and NASH that we've not covered yet on this podcast. The one news item or the one story, if you will, the one advance that will have the most impact on the field are EASL's updated guidelines on non-invasive technologies, non-invasive tests for the evaluation of liver disease severity and prognosis that were released just the first day at the beginning of the easel meeting. And as we have always 
always identified liver biopsy, particularly percutaneous liver biopsy, as historically done as the rate-limiting factor for the field in NASH and created our Beyond the Biopsy campaign around that. When we look to test the effectiveness of that campaign. Are we making progress? Are we moving the needle, perhaps pun intended, on the cultural expectations around use of biopsy, on the guidelines and rules around biopsy versus non-invasive technologies, and on the clinical adoption of non-invasive technologies? I think we are making progress on all three. So, and the easel guidelines being such a huge step forward in recognizing that non-invasive diagnostics really are and should be the standard of care in NASH with some provisos still as we continue to develop the evidence and develop the technologies. But this formal recognition and their updated clinical practice guidelines, I think, is a real milestone on this road to get beyond the biopsy. All right. So at the risk of asking you to go into more detail than you're comfortable with, can you place some of that forward, elaborate on what you think it means today and how it might roll out over the next six months, 12 months, two years, pick your time frame. Sure. It's been a very fascinating process for me as a patient, as a patient advocate across the past few months in in particular in several settings. And even though I've done policy professionally for longer than I'd like to admit, perhaps closing it on 25 years or so, the interplay and the the timing between medical practice, uh, medical society guidelines, regulatory uh, decisions, even how other advisory committees weigh in, the sequencing of those and the impact of those on those different stakeholder groups and and decision makers and, and policymakers of different definitions has been fascinating to appreciate in greater detail. That applies for the work that we were doing in, in vaccinations, as well as what we've been seeing here in non-invasive diagnostics and understanding who needs to go first. So it's not just a matter of doctors want need to start using it. It really is the sequencing of technology being available, evidence being generated, physicians starting to use it, medical societies creating the guidelines. So um, those late adopter physicians and systems feel more comfortable to use it so that payer structures change so that the incentives are, are aligned to use it. And then hopefully the regulators' decision making will change around the use of biopsy, not only clinical practice, but in in research setting as well. And so being a part of those conversations as a patient, you know, I feel very privileged to be so and to be able to weigh in and to see how this goes and better understanding the reluctance of certain parties to not act until other parties have played those roles. So I think these guidelines will really accelerate the number of physicians that have wanted to rely on non-invasive diagnostics, have wanted to get beyond the biopsy, but are in health system settings and tied into quality measures and others that need to follow the guidelines. When the guidelines change, I think it really liberates a lot of clinical practice to fall in line with what doctors have been saying for quite a while needs to be done. I also think that it is an important signal to the regulators that the ground on which they are building their insistence that biopsy remains a part of clinical research is crumbling on both aspects 
these guidelines changing and recognizing the prominence of non-invasive diagnostics and the multiple roles that they play is really significant. Okay, so noting that I'm not taking notes, so this is all out of memory. If I think of this as a cascade of events, this is where I get to. First, technology, which I guess we would say at this point is adequate or good enough, but hardly what it's eventually going to need to be. Much better on rule out than rule in. Right. And eventually we'd have to get better on rule in before we really were in a place where we were confident that it was completely adequate. Right. The recommendations say that non-invasive fibrosis tests should be used for ruling out rather than diagnosing advanced fibrosis in low prevalence populations. But they should be preferentially used in patients at risk of advanced liver fibrosis and not in unselected general populations. So I think even that distinguishing how they're used in low prevalence populations, or at least as we understand them today based on various risk factors versus those who we believe because of their concurrent adjunct conditions like obesity and diabetes and the like, it really shines that spotlight and differentiates that use case. And I think when we've seen things like Masvidal's you know, paper on, on cost-effectiveness of non-invasive diagnostics in uh, diabetic populations, it, you know, it speaks to to things like that. That was, that was where I was going to go next, which is you need to have places where the data that's been generated is adequate to support the case. Taking two forms. Number one is you need enough data to prove the benefit of the tests. So there are tests now that have recently come to market in some way, shape, or form where the people who develop them claim they might have pretty good positive predictive value, but the data just aren't there yet to support that. So that's one set of data. The second set of data is what you talked about, data generated by people like Mazen, to suggest that you actually have situations right now where you're improving the healthcare system by using the tests on the ground today in the world as it is, no approved drugs, et cetera. Are there other data sources? A, are those right? B, are there other I haven't mentioned, and see how do you see data developing in those areas? And you're not taking notes on A, B, and C, but those I will remember. So A, are, are those two both important to critical in the long run? Yes, I think that absolutely. Developing the evidence of the specific use cases is truly important. What I really have loved to, that I'm starting to see in this space is that we are addressing the evidence generation to solve specific problems, to actually answer specific questions that matter in practice. So if our issue is how do we use it for, use tests for diagnostic purposes, let's study that. If the issue is how can we distinguish between different stages of disease, let's study that or treatment response. And so rather than just sort of a general, let a thousand flowers bloom, which I'm not a fan of that as a research strategy, strategy, we are being much more intentional in terms of understanding what are the barriers in the space, what are the problems that we have, what are the questions that we need to answer, and let's do studies that answer those questions so that when we're talking to payers or regulators or others, we have a very strong, data-rich story to tell. So not to make too fine a point of this, but when Donna says, let a thousand flowers bloom, she is using the eloquent, gracious, and G-rated description for what the PG-13 
would be throw lots of slop at the wall and see what sticks. And if you change the word slop, you kind of move over to the reality of what we're talking about. I, I think that's a pivotal point. We talked a couple of weeks ago with Jorn Schottenberg, an episode you weren't on, but I know you've listened to, about cirrhosis and the idea that cirrhosis may be a more fertile place for drug development right now than advanced fibrosis. It's really two reasons. Number one being you don't get conditional approvals because ultimately you can prove outcomes relatively quickly given the path of disease from uh, compensated cirrhosis diagnosis all the way to a bad event. So you can relatively quickly prove out what you've done. FDA will not accept biomarkers for cirrhosis. They've already said that. So at any rate, you can get a faster approval and it's not a conditional approval. And the second thing, Stephen was particularly highlighting the work that Alina Allen and then separately later Mazen have done on the ability in MRE to use KPAs as predictive of a relatively short run outcome for compensated cirrhotic patients. So you've now met a couple of your criteria, right? You've got specific data against an endpoint that matters where you can trace it back to real life outcomes as compared to merely hypothesized outcomes. I think that was the guts of the episode. And then right after that, FDA approves ELF as a prognostic test for cirrhosis. Can you do me a favor? Can you fit the ELF test into that picture and then talk about what it doesn't do as well as what it does do? I can. One, I am very excited that our, in our being the community as a whole, as well as GLI specifically in our uh, policy and conversations with FDA and other regulators, I feel has borne fruit in that they recognize how important the diagnostic side is to the drug development side. There have been a couple of essential and consistent points, nothing if not consistent and a little bit persistent in, in things, but wanting FDA to appreciate that to properly evaluate NASH, you needed to not just house it in hepatology. It needed to involve cardiovascular renal for the lipids and, and other expertise. It needed to involve the device side because diagnostics were still were such an important part. And so I think the, the approval of the ELF test is important for the test itself and for what it can do. It's important because you know, we want to make sure that we are keeping in step with what Europe is doing. Traditionally, uh, the U.S. has led uh, as a regulatory body, and I, I'm not sure that we're there right now in this area. And so I think it's excited that, you know, we want to rise rise to that challenge and looking at Nash holistically that all these pieces have to be in place for us to really address this disease. So that's part of it. I do think that looking at cirrhosis, so the first part of your conversation and in looking at cirrhosis versus other stages of the disease is logical. It, it makes sense because of how sick the patients are. It makes sense in terms of the ability to show a meaningful clinical change that's difficult at, at earlier stages. And I put on my, if I were a drug developer hat, thinking forward of getting a drug paid for, I have to demonstrate that there are some costs that I'm saving, that there's some value I'm adding to the system. And cirrhotic patients are, because so few patients get advanced early, they're diagnosed at often very late stages and in cirrhosis or needing cancer or transplant. And so that is the most data that we have in advanced chronic liver disease, advanced cirrhosis. So you can quantify the effects that and savings that you have on the system to be able to create some type of model for price, but you know that better than I do and better than most people as well. I do, however, feel that while that can go first and be prioritized and it makes sense to get something through the door, to get something out there, which causes a you know cascade of events and, and attention and energy, there needs to be a solution for every stage, whether that's a drug or more intensive lifestyle therapy or bariatric surgery or a host of other things. We're going to leave no baffled and NASH patient behind. And so there does need to be a solution for every stage. So it is insufficient for the field to say, well, we're going to solve for cirrhosis and then our you know our job is our job 
wash our hands of it, our job is done. It is not. That can be the first approach to, to get over the threshold, but you cannot consider it mission accomplished, job done. There needs to be a solution for every stage of NAFLD and NASH patients. A, I agree with that. B, I think if you toss that statement to Stephen and Jorn and Louise on the Cirrhosis podcast, they would have agreed with that. With about the same level of firmness, virtually vocal militants that you just said it, the point being anything that gets you to full approval without having to wait several years for a phase four outcome study on a disease, the path of which we don't understand well enough except to know that it's, it takes a long time and it goes in lots of different directions and has some spontaneous reversals is a cleaner commercial path to get to market and will dramatically broaden the kinds of experiments and testing that people can do to figure things out because you'll now have approved drugs and a whole different revenue and education flow around it. So I, I couldn't agree with you more, but as you and I have commented on different occasions, journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, whereas previously it had been thought that F2, F3 was the easiest first step. It might not be. And to me, at least, help me if I get this wrong, because I'm still a relative rookie at this stuff. What the ELF approval says is that you now kind of have the battery of tests that you need, approved at least, um, for a thoughtful look at cirrhosis in an individual patient. The one caveat, though, is that people with cirrhosis are very sick. They have a higher rate of dropping off of trials of any length because they need to be transplanted or um, have cancer or unfortunately die or just get too sick to participate in a trial. So you have to be cognizant of that in terms of your recruitment and retention strategies and really thoughtful and working very closely with the FDA about the expectations for the length of the trial so that you can have patients who just physically or physiologically can last long enough to stay in it when you're dealing with a population that's so Yeah, the power calculations and the variability and all that starts to change pretty dramatically in stat speak. I think that's all correct. I was kind of on a different question, which is you can almost start to see a framework for treating patients that you suspect have, say, compensated cirrhosis, or at least being able to trial those patients and stay with them, or at least understand how to do initial prognosis of immediacy of risk without having to do biopsy. Yes, right? absolutely. And that's new. Yes. It's what we have been asking for and moving toward. This may not be a perfect analogy, but as most of our listeners know, I, I have inflammatory bowel disease as well as living life post, post-liver transplant. And so sometimes I'm you know approached in the course of the care across my many with a test for blood in stool or occult blood, fecal blood tests. And, and uh, I'm like, there's no need for that. It's not a cult. <laughs> I, can, I can see it, that there's no need for that test. And so I think when you have patients as sick as people are with cirrhosis, if they're having ascites and varices or they're yellow um, or, or whatever, I'm like, I don't need to do a biopsy on <laughs> you to, to tell. I even just as a very experienced liver patient could walk into most rooms and being like, you yes, have cirrhosis. And there's a whole host of things that we need to start doing for you without having to biopsy. Certainly with the array of serum imaging and an AI that we have at our available, there's, there's, there would be no need to puncture that patient and have the risks of bleeding or elsewhere that, 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 that they would be subject to. All right. I think that's obviously right. So going back to a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. This is a single step, not to be confused with the first two miles of the journey. Yes. I look back to like the Roth Investor Conference and Game of Thrones battle and being told on that stage, you know, all but patted on the head, Donna, we'll need biopsies for another 10 years. And my postulation that we could get beyond the biopsy in a rather succinct 
or constrained time frame, and that should be our expectation for the field, was openly challenged. I won't say mocked, but openly challenged. And when I look at the pace of which we have changed in attitude, thank you, Dr. Raju, <laughs> you know, in language, in clinical practice, now in these guidelines. And there, I even looked today on, on the website for the training qualifications. So as we look to the future of hepatology, at least of transplant hepatology fellows, before they had been required to have 30, experience doing 30 uh, liver biopsies, percutaneous liver biopsies, and then it changed to 20. And rumor is that even that 20 may be dropped or or eliminated. And so when you look at what skills are valued or what the expectation from the field is that, that hepatologists would be able to do. Now, certainly radiologists or others, you know, may be involved in doing some biopsies, but it does speak to a future where the expectation is that biopsy is very rare. And so that's where we've been, been moving. And I think we're moving very quickly, but in a very smart, informed, and engaged way. Jack, I'm just realizing the Roth Investor Conference you were at was the one while I was on an anniversary trip, because at the next one, the panel discussing the commercialization of these issues had two people on it, myself and a former colleague of yours, well, a former, former associate of yours who later appeared on the podcast, and it was actually a fairly similar debate to the one we later had on the podcast, um, which was me getting my proverbial head, not even get my head patted, but I was, it was quietly explained to me that life was a lot more complicated than I thought. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> life is always more complicated than we think. It depends on how many levels of detail you want to go down to, right? I mean, you know, a six decimal precision is always more complicated than you think, but sometimes all you need is whole numbers. And those tend not to be quite as hard. One more thing I want to cover today, which is what the ELF approval does mean, but also I'm a little concerned that people will overstate its breadth or importance or will recommend that it immediately get used in ways that might not be quite as helpful. Am I being um, nervous Nelly about this, or is there reason to think that might happen? The ELF test certainly has a lot of advantages, but I think it is still too early. As much as I would love to say there's like one test to rule them all and to be able to go back to the American College of Physicians, you know, internal medicine, family practice, and just say, we have solved it. That question that you asked me early on when I first approached you about, is there, you know, just one simple test that you can put into practice and it's going to answer all the questions and solve all the issues and fit perfectly into clinical workflow. And then we can just, again, you know, wash our hands and, and be done and, and put it through. I would love to be able to say, we've got it. This is it. I don't believe that's the case. I think there's still more work to be done. I think that there are other tests that have um, advantages to them as well. And this curation, this sort of narrowing down is very important. It gives us a chance to do what we said a few minutes ago, which was to do some studies with these specific specific tests now out of a narrower, smaller, more curated group to see how clinical workflow can progress in the different use cases that we have in terms of distinguishing NAFLD from NASH, distinguishing stage, distinguishing treatment response. There's still a solid number, maybe not a full full handful anymore, but a few of the serum serum-based tests. There are a few um, of the imaging tests that are emerging. There's AI. And then there's even just, uh, you know, I do appreciate improvements in biopsy itself, smaller needles and, and things like that when, when the times that there does have to be biopsy. So that's how I see the field right now. And I think it's really fantastic. And to be able to do pilot programs and test cases of 
both clinical productivity and workflow and how, how they work in the health system, as, as well as use for purpose for the specific tests and, and outcomes, how they help support the provision of care will be great, will be great to see. But no, I don't, I don't believe it's the be all end all yet. And we can just sort of stop looking or testing and, and, and thinking about, you know, how this should be done. Maybe in two directions. One being the breadth of what that indication was, approval was. And the second being, as you pointed out, the other tests, you've used the phrase one ring to one, one test to rule them all on several occasions. And going back to my own love of Middle Earth mythology and having, re- having read Tolkien more times than most people have seen the movie, I'm mindful of the idea that if you really want the ring before the ring is ready to be had, maybe the ring may never be ready to be had, but if it were, you would turn into Gollum and you would be a slippery character lurking in the shadows. So I think this is really important. And I'm not saying that anybody is doing that or being that. It's, it's a massive step. And as I say, when you put that together with some of the MRE data, you start to understand how you can do things at pivotal points for patient, in not only research, but actually for, for lay patients without having to worry about biopsy or do a biopsy. But I agree with you. I, I think at this moment, I appreciate your reverence for data and solid research and multidimensional thinking about that stuff more than ever. With that, I'm done. And you have anything else you want to add today? No, I'm just happy that I could play this part in what is the most important news of the summer around NASH. Every season should have really important news about NASH. We agree. And um, so we will come back and revisit this question in three more months and see what we've learned in the next three. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, September 15th, with our next episode. We're exploring two possible topics, each of which will yield a fascinating conversation. I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.